Welcome to the sermon podcast for Canton Church. We gather every week in Canton, Georgia to worship and grow together through God's Word. We exist because generations matter. We hope you are encouraged by today's message. Thanks so much for listening to the Canton Church podcast. This past Sunday, May 27th, we did something unique at our church, something we had never done before. We actually had 12 different communicators, six in each service, to present the message. Now, I told our church at the beginning of each service, this was not a novelty act or some kind of circus show. They had prepared and studied. We had gotten together several times to help them craft their message in one of two directions. One, maybe what God had done in their life or their life experience and how that applied to the people of our church, or two, a specific scripture or topic that they wanted to teach on. So at 9.30, we heard from Bob Frisbee, Brittany Smith, Tim Cheetah, Lauren Heineman, Juliana Smith, and Chad McCook. At 11, we heard from Helene Heineman, Adam Tiller, Cooper Isaacs, Trey Lopez, Missy Pope, and Billy Pashan. We hope over the next few minutes you are encouraged and challenged by their words. God bless. All right. All right. Thank you. Appreciate that. Good morning, Canton Church. It's a privilege and honor to be up here and speaking this morning. I'm going to talk to you briefly on the subject of setbacks. Setbacks create opportunities. Setbacks can create opportunities for God to move in our life. A few of you, a few months back or a few weeks back, heard Pastor Trevor speak about interruptions and interruptions in our lives. We don't like interruptions in our lives, but sometimes, Pastor Trevor said, those interruptions just might be God's plan for your life. Amen? Last week, you heard Pastor Jeremy speak about when God chooses somebody else. When God chooses somebody else, sometimes that can be disappointing to us. But it's through that disappointment that God grows us sometimes, matures us, teaches things, us things about ourselves to better be able to use, be service for Him. Amen? So this morning I'm going to talk to you a little bit different subject on setbacks and how they create opportunities. You know, it's not how we, it is how we respond to those setbacks that enable us to be used of God. And let me give you an example for that. You know, in 2015, I was still working, believe it or not, I did work for a living, I was, 2015, I was still working for the power company, for Southern Company. I was the director of corporate compliance. I'd been doing that job for about 15 years, and we were undergoing a reorganization. Reorganizations happen in corporate America. They're not always bad. Sometimes they're good. But in this particular reorganization, I was a little bit concerned. I was concerned because I was the only non-vice president, the only non-lawyer in the legal department, yes, the only non-lawyer in the legal department, that was reporting directly to the chief legal counsel for Southern Company. So I was a little bit concerned about the reorganization and where I might fall out, if you will. And back when Canton Church was still at Sequoia High School, we were meeting there. Pastor Mark Walker, who was the senior pastor at North, would come and speak occasionally to the church. And he was there that, this particular Sunday. And after we set up, we used to set up with pipe and drape and all these horrible things that we used to do preparing for service in the mornings. But Pastor Mark had a few downtime moments, and so like preachers do, they grab hold of you and say, well, tell me, Bob, what's going on in your life? How's things treating you? And, you know, I'd had a bad week that week, and I said, Brother Mark, let me tell you, I'm going through this reorganization at work, and it's kind of wearing on me. And then I stopped, and I said, you know what? It's Sunday morning. God is good. I said, just preach me a good, uplifting message, something that, that I can really stand on. And Brother Mark, he kind of looked at me, and he shrugged his shoulders, and he said, well, Bob, he said, you know, this is the third Sunday in our series on cats and dogs, you know, something that had really nothing to do with what I was going through. And he said, but I'll do the very best I can. I said, I know that. Don't worry about it. 
So he gets up there to speak, and he starts to speak, and he just stops, and he says, Church, you know, I don't do this very often. He said, In fact, I don't think I've ever done this at Canton Church. He said, But I've got to go a different direction. He said, I feel the Holy Spirit leading me in a different direction. I cannot preach on cats and dogs this morning. And he began to talk about when Israel was freed from bondage from Egypt. And he began to talk about how they were coming out of Egypt, and they were on their life's journey, and they were all full of happiness because they had freedom and the spoils of Egypt with them, and yet to only turn around and look and see Pharaoh's army coming down on them, ruling down on them to kill them, to destroy them. And in front of them was the Red Sea, an obstacle that in their mind's eye they could not get over or around. And Pastor Mark's point was when we have adversity, when we have interruptions, when we have setbacks, when we have times of disappointment, when we have things that attack us, don't be fretful. He said, be still, stand firm, and see God move. He's saying, don't be all upset. Don't be nervous. If you have faith in me, be still, stand firm, and watch God move on your behalf. Well, needless to say, you know, I come out of that message that, that Sunday morning, like I do every Sunday morning here in Canton Church, Amen. knowing that Brother Jeremy has just reached right into my soul and grabbed me and said, Bob, this is for you. You know, I came out of it thinking, oh, man, Lord, hallelujah. I'm fixing to be the next vice president corporate compliance at Southern Company, and I don't even have a law degree. Well, let me tell you something. You know, we can love the Lord with all our heart. We can love the Lord with all our soul, with all our might. That's what we're called to do, amen? We can read the word every single day, and we should be reading the word. We, how can we know the Lord if we don't know his word? We should be praying every single day that we do those things, setbacks, still happen in our lives amen adversity still comes you know jesus said in john 16 he said in this world you're going to have trouble but take heart i have overcome the world in this world in your life as you're going down your life's path your life's journey you're going to have setbacks you're going to have interruptions you're going to have times of disappointment amen i think we can all identify with that but to take heart I've overcome the world, so if I'm in you and you're in me, then you can overcome the world too, and, I can, and you can be used of my Father, amen? That's what he's telling us. You see, I had my eyes fixed on a different position. I wanted to be the next vice president, but God had a different plan in my life. He interrupted my situation. I had a setback to occur, and I could have let that derail my life, but I didn't. You know, I just said, Lord... You sh in fact, I remember telling Brother Jeremy, I said, the first thing I wrote down was, Lord, you show me my work after work. He allowed me to retire. I said, you show me my work after work. So I'm going to leave you with this thought. Don't let your setbacks be stumbling stones. Let your setbacks be stepping stones to the next place God is leading you. When you're in adversity, amen, don't let interruptions, don't let discouragement, don't let adversity be a stumbling stone to you. I know it's hard, but you just be still, stand firm, and watch God move on your behalf. Amen? I thank you for the opportunity to speak this morning. Hi, I probably won't do that good, but uh, my name's Brittany Smith, and for our regulars, you're probably thinking, but you're not blonde. No. My husband and I are normally referred to as the other Smiths. Um, you may recognize me from Kids Life. I'm there every Sunday uh, serving, and um, that is a calling that uh, God has placed on mine and my husband's heart. 
Um, but that's not the only thing I believe that God has called me to do. Um, and that's what I want to talk to you about today, uh, the different types of callings and what that may look like in your life. Um, some may be called to be preachers or teachers. Um, some may be called to work the parking team on Sunday or guest services. Um, but God may also call you to do something that's out of the norm, um, something that you wouldn't think of as being a calling. Um, you know, a lot of people at church refer to me as the dog lady. Uh, a couple years ago, we had a pet-themed VBS, um, and I brought a dog and some puppies to, to VBS. Uh, this is Chance, being spiritually fed with the kids. Uh, Chance is one of my uh, five personal dogs. Uh, when people hear that, I normally get asked, or they say it under their breath, who needs that many dogs? <laughs> Literally, no one. No one needs that many dogs. Uh, but those five dogs needed me. Um, and that's my other calling in life. Um, it may seem like just a passion to some, um, but when I was preparing for this speech, um, one of the definitions that I found for passion is an intense desire or enthusiasm for something. Um, when God calls you to do something, he normally places a desire in your heart, and he equips you to do so and follow through, okay? Uh, God gives us different strengths for a reason. The Bible says this in Romans 12, 4, for just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. It's easy to read that and think of people who have clear spiritual gifts given by God, um, Jeremy, <laughs> um, and think, well, how do I know what my gift is, and, and how does that relate to my calling? Um, and again, I would just say passion and equipment. Um, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is actually found in Proverbs, um, and it says that the righteous care for the needs of their animals. Now, do I mean to say that everybody who takes care of their animals is being called by God to do so? No. Uh, but in my case, I was. Um, I have a passion for it. Um, I want to care for animals. I want to understand them. I want to train them. I want to have a bond with them that many others don't understand. Um, some of you who have been in my board game life group, if you haven't been, you should, um, may have met <laughs> my dog, Rocket. Uh, Rocket was my first real rescue, okay? Um, yes, I'd helped dogs in the past. I'd bottle-fed puppies. I had captured them and rehabilitated them, which most would, would consider rescue. Um, but she was my first life-or-death save. Uh, when I picked up Rocket, um, I had no intention of getting a dog that day. Um, I kept thinking, oh, man, my husband's going to kill me. <laughs> um, but he saw her, and he understood. Um, she was a day or two away from starving to death. Uh, she was completely hairless from mange. Her skin was uh, pink and swollen and puffy. Um, and I, I would try to feed her. She refused to eat no matter what it was. Um, she had given up. She had resolved to die. Um, and I don't have a picture of that day. Um, it's probably for the better because it, it is literally heartbreaking. Um, I just cried and cried and cried for days. Um, but um, we forced her to eat slowly day by day. She started to eat on her own. We would give her daily medication for mange. Um, about two months later, with daily treatment, this is what she looked like. Go back. Go back. 
Um, you can see in the picture that it, it, it kind of looks like hair, but it's not. That's actually just skin pigment and scabs um, from, from healing. Um, she had to wear one of my T-shirts because if not, she would scratch um, bleeding sores on herself. Um, and she's still really thin in that picture. Um, about three months after we got her, she looked like this. Um, she's starting to get hair. Um, she's gaining weight, but doesn't look like a husky, obviously, the comparison, my other husky champs. Um, but she's starting to look better. Um, and finally, after three years of love and care and a constant food <laughs> management battle, uh, Rocket actually looks like this. Rocket, Rocket, come here, baby. Hey, baby. <laughs> um, this is my calling, okay? Um, is it what you normally think of when you think of callings from God? No. Uh, but God gave us dominion and control over the animals of the earth. Um, they are our responsibility. Um, and it's my calling. What does your calling look like for you? Um, it may be a desire of your heart that God has specifically placed. It may be as simple as just to love others. Um, but God calls everyone for a specific purpose. Thank you for letting me share today. Uh, hello, everybody. My name is Tim Cheetah, like the cat. Uh, I've been <laughs> I've been going to Canton Church for about a year and a half now with my wife Anna, and whenever I get uh, excuse me, whenever I get invited to speak publicly, I have a tendency to talk like Yoda, and I don't mean in his voice, but just the way that he phrases things. So if that happens up here, just smile and nod at me. <laughs> Speaking of Yoda, I am a huge nerd, and one of the things I'm a nerd about is history. And there's so much history in the Christian church, so much that we can learn from. And I'd like to share something from history for you. In the early 1900s, there was a young 16-year-old uh, named William Borden. He was very wealthy, and he had a chance to travel over the, all over the globe. Uh, but when he was traveling, he noticed how many hurting and broken people there were. And when he came home, he told his parents and family that he wanted to be a missionary. Well, since they were so filthy rich, they thought it was a waste of time. But in response to that, William Borden wrote down in the back of his Bible two words, no reserves. When he began college at Yale, all of his friends noticed how spiritually far ahead that he was uh, compared to the rest of them. A little later on in life, uh, they found a journal entry of Williams, and um, it said, say no to self and say yes to Jesus every time. When, uh, when William uh, started college at Yale, uh, he started uh, praying and reading the Bible every morning, and uh, he did this with a fellow student. And then a little later on, a third student joined him, and then a fourth, and so on and so on. By the end of his freshman year at Yale, the group grew to 150. But because of his leadership, because of William's leadership, <coughs> by the end of his senior year, the group grew to 1,300 people, which included uh, mission outreach programs as well. 
Um, as his graduation pressed closer, he, the, the urge to follow what God wanted to do in his life increased, and he turned away many high-paying job offers. Um, and he wrote another two words in the back of his Bible, again, uh, no retreats. William's story is basically a story of discipleship, and I'd like to suggest that there's three key uh, ingredients to discipleship. Uh, the first is that discipleship is relational. Matthew 28, 19 says that we're to go out and make disciples of all nations. In John 13, 35, Jesus says to his disciples that in, uh, for them to know for other people to know that they're disciples of Jesus, um, uh, they can see the love that they have for one another. Discipleship doesn't mean forsaking all others for Jesus. It just means having a heart for the hurting, and it means investing in people just like Jesus did. <clears throat> the second thing is that discipleship is sacrificial. In Luke 9.23, Jesus says, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Borden understood that to do the work of God, there would have to be sacrifices that would be made, such as giving up living in a world of luxury. The third thing is that discipleship is transformational. Borden saw this at the end of the senior at his the end of his senior year with the 1,300 people that were in those prayer groups. In Acts chapter 2, during the Pentecost, the Holy Spirit roars through the upper room of 120 people gathered. Peter gets up and sp speaks a convicting sermon, and he brings in 3,000 people to Christ that day. But, you know, we aren't all going to get called to the same place that Borden was, but chances are, if we're in a relationship with Christ, there's a good chance that we're going to feel that tug of discipleship. You don't have to feel the pressure of starting a prayer group like Borden because that happened organically. But next time you see your neighbor or your coworker who you know is hurting, you can just open up your home to them. We might, we might not have to sacrifice enormous amounts of wealth like Borden, but maybe it's time instead, so instead of turning on Netflix or turning on video games, at, <coughs> at the end of every night when the kids go to bed, you can just open up your Bible and start meditating and spending time with Scripture. We might not see society change because of your discipleship, but you might see your family transform and become disciples themselves. There are two things I want to close with. The first thing is the uh, verse, which in my opinion is foundational for discipleship. It says in Luke 9:24, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever wants to lose their life will save it. Uh, so William Borden, when he left seminary, he, he left for, for China, but first he stopped in Egypt to learn Arabic because he thought it would help him teach Muslims in China. Uh, while he was in Egypt, he contracted spinal meningitis, and then a month later, he died. So he didn't get to realize his dream. And some people might think that's a, a shame, but I think that William Borden found more of his life 
and lived more of his life in just those nine years of ministry than most pe believers will do in their entire life. Uh, in the back of his Bible, he wrote two more words, no regrets. I'm here to tell you that if you take up the call of discipleship, you won't regret it either. Thank you for letting me speak. Good morning, my name is Lauren Hyman and I'm married to Trevor Hyman who is the student and volunteer pastor here at Canton Church. Last Wednesday, we celebrated our third anniversary and yes, it was a Wednesday. Yes, we were here worshiping with the students and leaders here, but I was okay with that because I knew when Trevor asked me to marry him that I was gonna be married into ministry. I knew at the age of 15 that I was gonna be called into ministry. At the time, I didn't really know what that looked like or what that was gonna be part of, but I knew as I found Trevor and as we started dating and as we got married, that that was a part of the calling that God had on my life. I also grew up in church, and I knew that ministry was just going to be part of who I was. I grew up in a Christian home where my I had a grandfather and an uncle and some cousins who are preachers, and I would believe that my grandmothers were spiritual warriors or prayer warriors for me in my life. And in fact, when my parents got married and had us, they felt it was best for us to be raised in church and to teach us about God. And at a young age of five, my father led me to the Lord. And three months later, he baptized me. And I've always been admired by his faith and influenced by that. And I'm so thankful for my family and for their teaching me about the Lord in my life. But I'm more thankful for their prayers because prayer holds so much power and I believe that there were things in my life that I was able to walk out of and able to come through because of their prayers. So maybe you're praying today. Maybe you are a grandmother and you have brought your grandkids here because you believe in the power of community and the power of God has on their life. Maybe your child has ran away from God and you're believing that one day they'll come to know the Lord and you're praying and I would encourage you to keep praying. Maybe you're a spouse and you're here by yourself because they're home and they don't they have been hurt by the church or maybe they have ran away from God but you're praying and I would encourage you keep praying. Maybe you are a child and your parents have ran away from God or maybe they've never known the love of God and you're praying and I would encourage you keep praying. Maybe you're a parent or maybe a soon-to-be parent and you're praying for your kids. You're praying for your soon-to-be kids or maybe one day in-laws. And I would encourage you to pray that you, will, that they will come to know God. Keep praying because prayer holds power. And I am a testament to those prayer. I want to encourage you with this story that's found in Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29, 11 is a very known verse that is very well um Said, but the scripture behind it is so powerful. And Jeremiah is an Old Testament prophet. And Jeremiah at this time in this chapter is talking to the people of Jerusalem that are being brought into exile into Babylon. And he is speaking this word that God has to them. And God's telling them, look, I'm sending you to this place, but I want you to make a home there. I want you to grow crops and eat from it. And I want you to make children and multiply. Don't dwindle away because here's why. I'm gonna, there's going to be people 
people that come in my name, and I didn't send them. So you've got to remain faithful. He even tells them how long they're going to be there. He says, I'm gonna, you're going to be there for 70 years. That's a lifetime. But this is where I want to pick up in Jeremiah 29, 10. It says, but then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised. And I will bring you home again. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster. To give you a future and a hope. In those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. I will be found by you, says the Lord, and I will end your captivity and restore your fortunes. I will gather you out of the nations where I sent you and will bring you home again to your own land. If you are praying, I encourage you with this story to keep praying. It may take 70 years, but remember that God says he has a future for them, that he will hear your prayers, they will be found by him, and they will be home again. Maybe you're out there and I, when I grew up in church, I never really had a story. I never really felt like that I had a story that could compare to someone. I felt like a God story would look like this, or you had to be part of something, or part of this friend group, or addicted to these things. And I felt because my life looked a certain way, it didn't fit that mold that I didn't have a God story. But I'm, but about three years, or my early years of college, I realized that I did have a story. And I want to encourage you, maybe Maybe you feel like you don't have a story. And I want to encourage you, the thing that I found, that my story holds just as much power as someone that has been redeemed by addiction. Someone that has not gone through the things because God has power. Your prayer that you're praying holds power because it has power to redeem someone because you're praying to a powerful God. Because prayer has power, I want to pray for you today. Lord, thank you so much for giving us your son to redeem us from your from uh, sin lord thank you so much for being god that is willing and mighty to save lord thank you for the people that you brought here today that they are praying for people lord i pray that as your word says that you have a future for them encourage them to keep praying lord i pray that you will relieve deliver them from their sins and that you will bring them home again lord i encourage the person that feels like they don't have a story that they do lord encourage them that you are writing something so incredible and protecting them from so much lord thank you for all you've done and we ask all this in jesus name amen Well, hi, my name is Juliana Smith, and I know what you guys are thinking. What is this 16-year-old girl doing up here on stage? And I may or may not be thinking the same thing you are right now. I am incredibly nervous, nervous, but I'm so honored and so excited that I get the opportunity to come up here and tell you what's been on my heart. Um, and with that being said, I may not be very good at this, so just bear with me. But as Brittany mentioned a bit ago, um, she's... She mentioned the blonde smiths. I am one of the blonde smiths. Um, I may be very blonde, but I'm not the only one. I'm the oldest of seven, other little blondes. And then, so with that, my youngest is a two-year-old little sister who I absolutely adore. Um, but with her being two, we haven't gotten into the stage where we can communicate yet or have a full conversation, but we're getting there. Um, but when I do talk to her, I talk to her with simple words or I repeat things that she says back to me. Or we just talk in a very like baby-like talk. Maybe that's how you talk to your dog, but not me. Um, but 
We you, we do simple words. And as some of y'all may know, Jesus didn't have six brothers and sisters, but he did have 12 disciples who he encountered like this on a daily basis. And so I found three different examples and three different verses that I want that will explain what I'm trying to say a little better. So the first verse I want to talk to you about or to read is Mark 1:16 verse 18. And it says, passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I will make you become, disciple, make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And then my second example that I found was in Matthew 13, where he talks about how some of the, where the seeds fell into different soils. Some of them fell into rocky places, some of them fell into path, and then some of them fell into thorns, and then some fell into really good soil. And then my third example is in John 20, verse 16, where Jesus says, um, what Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher, which to me is one of my favorite verses because it just like paints such a beautiful picture for me. And so all of these verses, what do we see? We see Jesus come to them and uniquely talk to them. With the examples that I gave of Jesus talking to the fishermen and the farmers, he gave them examples that made sense to them. It was a unique, unique setting. With the fishermen, he gave them examples of fishing for men, and then with the farmers, he gave them examples of the seeds falling into different soils. He did that because he took where they were in life and used it to minister to them. They were, because in all reality, Simon and Peter, Simon and Andrew, were just fishermen, and the farmers were just farmers, and they thought that they were just farmers and fishermen, and it held no special label, and really it didn't, but God took it, and he saw something different. He saw a, m a moment to minister to them in a way that would make sense to them. In God's eyes, who you are and what you do in life isn't just something that God can't do something with, because what my last example that I mentioned a minute ago was when Jesus talked to Mary. And in that setting, I said how that was such a beautiful picture because in that setting, God took something so personal to her, her name, and he called her by her name so that he could have a unique and personal conversation and relationship with her that would go beyond any other thing that he could have ever said to her. And I think that we can all agree when someone calls you by your name or talks to you personally it is so much better than that awkward conversation you have when someone just cannot remember your name and you feel so bad for them or that awkward conversation where you can't remember theirs because that's not any better. Um, but Jesus did. He knew her name in each of those circumstances. He knew what, what would help them in that moment. And um, I think we often believe that God, like, he doesn't do that for us today because he has so many people to look after and he has so much to do, I guess. But that's a lie that we continue to believe because we've seen it in past relationships that we have on this earth where that person has pushed you off or that person hasn't completely, like, had that special moment with you or they want to really get to know you. And then what we have to understand is we cannot let relationships that we have on this earth affect how we view, view our father because that is so wrong. Because even because what persist God persistently wants to pursue you and pursue this relationship that He wants with you, He does it because He unconditionally loves you. Even and we can try to run from it, but it just never works because He pursues you every single day, even when you feel like you don't deserve it or when you don't want it. 
So I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that God changes because we know that is absolutely not true because in Hebrews 13 verse 8, it says God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so God never changes. But what I am saying is that he wants that distinctive relationship with you like no other. And I think why this is such a strong topic for me is because the past few years have been pretty rough for me um, on an emotional standpoint. Um, I had a surgery in my freshman year, which allowed me not to be able to walk for six months, which is basically my whole freshman year. And then um, my friends moved to different schools, and then my sophomore year, I just completely lost all of my friends um, just because I moved to another school, and then I just went through a really rough time. But throughout this two past few years, Jesus has been my number one strength the entire time. And that's only because he was the unconditional love that I needed every day. And he was that unconditional, relentless relationship that I needed every single day. He, for the past two years, I could have not done anything without Jesus. Because I would not be the same person I am today. Because today, Jesus brought me from where I physically cannot even walk to today running. And, and so... <laughs> So what I want to leave you with is that Jesus pursues you and pursues that relationship with you. And what he's done in my life, I know he can do it in your life too. Because it is incredible. And Jesus' relationship, his relationship with you changes everything. And so what I want to leave you with is that you need to strive for the relationship that he strives with you. And so Continue just to pursue that relationship he has with you. And thank you so much for listening to me. And I pray that God will continue to use what I had to say and just do amazing things with it. So we all know that there are two paths in life. There is the narrow path with the small gate, and it leads to the kingdom of heaven. And then there is the broad path um, with the wide gate. And one guess as to which one I traveled. Yeah, exactly. So the wide path was my choice, and that's where I traveled for a long, long time. So this morning, I would like to speak to you guys about free will and what that became to look like to me. You know, when you talk about free will, there's a lot of back and forth. Um, does God intervene in our free will? You know, is our free will stronger than God's will? So, in my 15 years of wandering lost in the wilderness, I found that really and truthfully, God's given us free will to answer one question. And it's, will you follow me? You know, it's found in 9 verse 23, as we heard earlier. It's, will you deny yourself, take your cross up daily... And follow me. This is the true free will question that I believe we have the chance to answer. Because think about this. You know, the broad path, it says you can choose what's best for you. Um, it says, hey, the Bible wants to restrict you, uh, restrict your fun, restrict your freedom. You know, kind of like the serpent described to Eve in the garden. Um, following the rules of God, they equal experience deprivation here on earth. Um, but really, that thinking is just a big trap. You know, the broad path, the last thing the broad path wanted me to figure out was the Bible. It's a handbook to freedom, 
human freedom, true human freedom here on earth. Um, because what happens, the moment I exercise my free will outside of God's perfect will for my life, I find myself to be in the very opposite place of free. I become enslaved to sin, whether it's addicted to pleasure, alcoholism, drug addiction, social media vanity, all of the above. Pick your poison. Um, ignoring God's perfect will to exercise my free will, you know, it can look a lot like this. It's, hey, God, I know your word says this, um, but it's not going to hurt if I do that, right? Um, I believe that human nature, free will, when, ungu when unguided by God's perfect will for our lives, leads to perpetual sinning and falling short. It leads to slavery. Um, let's look at Trevor's favorite guy, which is the book of Jonah. Um, in the story of Jonah, God asks him to go to Nineveh. He says, I want you to go there. I want you to deliver a message. So Jonah decides that he's going to exercise his free will and he's going to hop on a boat and go in the opposite direction. All right. So then God, he enacts his perfect will and he delivers Jonah to the shore of Nineveh via the belly of a large fish. Now at this point, you would think that Jonah would forevermore surrender his free will and say like, God, your will for my life from now on. He spent three days in the belly of a smelly fish. I'm ready to go. Um, but he doesn't. The book of Jonah closes out with him so mad over a shade vine that God crea created for him dying. that He tells God he's so mad about it that he wishes that he could die. Now, if that's not the perfect example of human hard-headed free will, I, I have no clue what is. But most importantly, in the case for free will, I believe that the book of Jonah shows us firsthand that God has no problem intervening in our free will. He will even override it when necessary, all right? So this morning, I don't know where you guys are at in the battle of wills. Maybe you wouldn't mind a Jonah experience and have God send a fish to you, you know, scoop you up and spit you in the right direction and say, here you go. Um, or maybe you're still thinking, God hasn't even called me into his perfect will. But if that's you, I would argue severely that he's doing it right now. Um, maybe the broad path of human free, free will led you in the wrong direction for so long that you have no clue how to even get back to the narrow path, much less walk it if you got back. But I can tell you guys from personal experience, God holds your hand every step of the way. And when you need, he carries you. That's what he does. So... I also know that a lot of people have loved ones that are lost and disconnected from Christ. We all do, and it's part of the world that we're in. Um, but I want to encourage you this morning to keep praying for them. Keep praying that God will do like he did for Jonah, that he'll continue to interrupt their free will until they basically accept salvation for their lives. Um, and while you're praying, I pray that God would do what he does, because when we pray, it naturally aligns our will to the will of God. And then I believe it gives us insight. I believe then that we can see what God's perfect will is for their lives and his perfect timing. Um, God has a perfect plan for each of our lives. Um, we all, it doesn't matter where we're at, we all have an all-access backstage pass 
to the one and only true God thanks to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We have access to a God that keeps his promises. You know, I think sometimes today we live in a world where we've forgotten what that means. We forgot, you know, the value and the bond of one's word. Um, but our God is not. You know, he says that he wishes for everyone to be saved. But he wants us to choose him. He has a perfect plan for each of our lives. He has a perfect will. I believe that every day Jesus is trying to get our attention. I believe that he wants to get our attention. The question is, is we reply back every day by saying, Father, not my will, but your perfect will be done in my life. Because I believe if we just hold on tight to that, It's going to be better than anything that we've ever dreamed up. And I want to tell you today that I'm living proof of that. I want to thank Pastor Jeremy. And I want to thank each and every one of you for sitting here and enduring me and allowing me to share what God put on my heart this morning. Thank you. So I want to share something that I have learned about the Israelites in the past couple of years. They um, don't have a very good memory. And by that I mean they were wandering in the wilderness and started just kept grumbling and complaining. And in Exodus 16, 2 and 3, they were grumbling. If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Okay, they're out in the desert. It had literally been one month, about around a month, since they had been in Egypt, Egyptian captivity, where they were enslaved and oppressed. In that month, they were allowed to leave. God, God got them out of Egypt, and they, all of their firstborn were saved, but all of the Egyptians' firstborn were killed. They went through the Red Sea on dry land with walls of water on either side of them. They got to the other side of the Red Sea, turned around and looked, the Egyptian army was behind them, and the walls caved in on them, and every one of them were dead. They came to another desert, and the water was bitter, and God turned the water to sweet water so that they could have plenty to drink. All of that happened in a month, and they had forgotten, and now they're grumbling and complaining. And I have to ask, are we any different than they are, or do we live the way that King David says in 1 Chronicles 16 and 12, Remember the wonders he has done and his miracles. As a teenager, I was in a car with a friend driving northbound. I wasn't driving. He was driving northbound on Canton Highway in Marietta, and a semi-truck pulled out in front of us. And we're going 45 miles an hour. We're going toward the semi, and in my mind, I'm thinking, I am about to die. And we're literally heading toward the undercarriage of the, um, the trailer part. And my friend jerked the wheel over to the right, and we went up beside the trailer within a hair of the trailer. And in my mind and in my heart, God said, I've protected you. And that's when I realized that he could be my protector. And he did protect me, but I didn't know God then. The only thing I knew about God was the song, Jesus Loves Me. I had memorized John 3:16 when I was a little girl, but I was not saved. I was not a Christian, did not go to church, was not raised in church. Um, at 21, I, I accepted Christ as my Savior. 
he, I fell 100% in love with God. He became my best friend. He became my peacemaker. He was my all in all. He um, was my Lord, the Lord of my life. A few, few years later, Dave and I had left church. That's my husband. We had left church in Marietta and were heading to the mall. We had our three children and two of our friend's children with us, and we, were he- we had time to stop at the mall and eat and then go to the viewing of those little boys' uncle. And we, on the way to the mall, we're talking, we only have enough money for he and I to eat um, lunch. I mean, not he and I, the kids to eat lunch. And um, we fed them, not us. But so we're going <laughs> to so we're gonna go, you know, hungry. Dave and I decided we're just not going to eat. Maybe we can pillage a few French fries off of their plate. We go to the mall, and we're walking through the crowd. It gets crowded on Sundays at the mall, if you don't know. And I'm heading toward McDonald's, and I look down, and there's a $20 bill at my feet. And I pick it up, and I'm looking around. Is anybody looking for money? And nobody is looking for money. God had provided for us, and not just enough for us, but more than enough. It didn't take $20 for Dave and I to eat at the mall back then. Um, So at that point in time, I realized, you know what? He's my provider. Um, another thing that happened last December, we were in construction in this place. Most of you know that. And we were expanding. And one Sunday, Jeremy, our pastor, Jeremy said, I want everybody to come up front and write somebody's name on the wall or on the floor. And so my husband and I walked up front and right about where the stand is for the microphone, my husband and I, I wrote my son, my oldest son's name down my daughter-in-law's name down, and my two grandchildren's name down. We had not seen our grandchildren in three years. We had seen and heard from our daughter-in-law and and son-in-law, I mean our son, one time for 30 minutes at a funeral in three years. We get home from church that day, and my husband had left his phone at church, and he, I mean at home, and he picks it up, and there is a text message from our son. And at that moment, we realize that God is a miracle worker, and there is hope. He, is, he gives us hope, and he has been repairing that relationship. So um, 10 years ago, I battled cancer. I had breast cancer. And with cancer, you have physical challenges. And as I had surgery after surgery and, you know, chemo, radiation, and with the physical challenges, God says, remember, the car accident that you could have been in, but I protected you. I am your protector. With that, you also have emotional challenges. You have fear. And he says, remember, you asked me to be your Lord, and I am your peacemaker, and he gave me peace. And, he, and with that, you have financial challenges, a million dollars worth of, in, of medical bills. You have great insurance, which is good, but you still have your little bit. And he said, but remember the $20 bill that you found? I am your provider. I will provide a way for you to make your house payments. And then lastly, I have friends who are going through divorce. I have a friend who has very severe back pain. I have friends who um, just different things that are going on that ask me to pray for them. And when you just don't have that hope, you're like, God, how, how can they make it through? How can they do this? Remember, he says, your son that I am healing that relationship after three years that you didn't have, you had almost given up hope. So I leave you with this. Are you going to be like the Israelites? Are we going to choose to be like them and grumble our way through life? Or are we going to live, as King David said, remember the wonders he has done and his miracles? Thank you for letting me talk.
Good morning. Auditorium just grew about five times, it looks like. <laughs> I'm not nervous. I've been saying that a lot the last 10 minutes. Um, no, happy to be here. Um, for those of you who don't know, my name is Adam Tiller. Uh, my wife and I, Katie, have been coming to Canton for uh, just over a year now. We love this church. There's just so many awesome people here. If you're not in a life group, I would very much encourage you to get in one. Uh, it's just so many good people here. Make sure you're not missing out and get to know them. Um, you know, I'm excited about the opportunity to, to get up and speak in front of you guys this morning. Um, what I want to talk to you this morning on is forgiveness. Um, you know, I think about forgiveness in two main interactions. You've got um, the forgiveness that we ask for and receive from God, and you've got the forgiveness you ask for and receive from each other. And I want to focus on, you know, the part where we're interacting with each other in, in forgiveness. Um, you know, this is a broad subject, but, you know, just so you know, my frame of mind in approaching this, why I wanted to talk about it, um, is a big life um, event that's happened uh, in the last, it's dragged on three, four years, is divorce my parents. It's been a very tough uh, situation, and, um, you know, this is kind of what led me into this. So here's the scripture I want to focus on this morning. Uh, it's Matthew 6, 14 through 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. That's weighty. Um, you know, as we move through life, trespasses, I mean, they can be minor, they can be major. You know, they're introduced by people we know very well, people we don't know at all. Um, you know, they can just come in so many different forms. Katie, uh, my beautiful wife, would say that I make trespasses against our uh, clean house and her just about every day. Um, and I point her to Matthew 6.14. <laughs> in all seriousness, um, you know, I'm talking about a business deal gone wrong with your best friend, uh, a situation where 20 years of marriage is teetering on the edge. You know, you can be talking about stuff where the stakes are very real, and, you know, the result is the same when it's not addressed at the time of the trespass. Um, you know, that is going to take root. Neither will your father forgive your trespasses, and it builds a barrier between you and God. And, you know, this is the hardest part for me to understand and to swallow. Uh, it cannot be your fault. You may not have been the one that introduced it, but um, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. Our ability, uh, you know, to let God into that situation take care of it, it's the only way uh, that you're going to move past that hurt. Here's an image that I thought of. Uh, maybe it would make a little bit of more sense. But if you're uh, out and about and skin your knee, the first thing you got to do when you you know, break your skin, is you got to put hydrogen peroxide on it. Hurts like the dickens, but you got to take care of it right then. If you don't, if you don't clean that wound, um, something that's fairly minor can turn into something very major. It could be a week, it could be a month down the road. Um, you could break out in a fever, it could threaten your life. It can manifest itself in areas of your body that are not related to the skin on your uh, knee. And I think that's a powerful image because that's, uh, that's how sin works. And it, it gets down deep in your soul in areas where 
uh, you never thought it should go. Now, uh, I didn't grow up in a family with a healthy view of forgiveness. Um, I think I witnessed a lot of forgive and never forget, and that's such, uh, it's such a hurtful thing. Uh, I think I saw it a lot, and I've started putting it in action a lot, where, um, you know, the offense happens, trespass happens, and you forgive, and then you kind of follow it away so that, uh, you know, a year down the road, two weeks down the road, um, a hurt comes up, and you can pull it back up and shove it in someone's face, and that's just not, uh, that's not what we're called to do. Thank God that, uh, you know, that's not our relationship with God. Um, you know, <laughs> it's it just, Jesus didn't say it is finished until Billy lies again. Thank God that we're forgiven and have the power uh, to forgive when our own strength fails. You know, this is not an indictment of your life or decisions you've made. This is really, this is an encouragement. It's something that I've experienced. It's something that um, just, when it's not addressed, it just, it can tear away at you. You know, it's a big subject to talk about in five minutes or unpack in five Sundays. Um, but here's the key that I want to I leave you with. When we actively forgive, we can experience the freedom that comes from being forgiven. Our ability to forgive is a fruit of our understanding and experience uh, of the forgiveness that we receive from the Father. Now, practice makes perfect. And again, it's not the easiest thing to do. But having that kind of awareness of when these things happen, you're driving off 400 and someone flips you off. You know, any of that stuff, you can put it into practice in the next 10 minutes where you decide, you know, where you're going to eat and Paul wants Mexican, I want Italian. But, you know, the roadblocks in your life, here's what I would encourage you with. Seek out the Father. Seek your brothers and sisters that you trust that can help guide you through uncovering some of these past trespasses or offenses. Because um, if they're not dealt with, they don't, they don't go away by just getting buried under more uh, stuff. So, thank you for letting me share this morning, and uh, God bless. <laughs>
I think it was so cool because our mission statement here at the church is because generations matter. And that Sunday spoke to it because people from 11 years old to 18 years old were serving people of all ages. But since I was in the band playing, I noticed that the average age of everybody on the uh, stage was under 16 years old. And I think that just speaks to how any age can lead God and lead other people and share God's word. But of my favorite character in the Bible is David, and my middle name is David. So I think that's where I kind of get it from. But, <laughs> but um, in the Bible, David did many things from de defeating Goliath with just a rock, but he also did many things by getting anointed to become the next king of Israel. In the Bible, God sends Samuel out to David's house while David is out um, tending his father's sheep. Samuel is looking at his six older brothers who are bigger and stronger, and Samuel thinks they're the ones that need to be anointed. But God then tells him that they are not it because God can see the heart, he but while Samuel can only see the outward appearance. And David is then called because Samuel wants another, one to, another son to look at because God says the six other brothers are not it. That's when, when Samuel first saw David, he knew he was it. And right then and there, he was anointed in front of his older, handsomer, and stronger brothers. David was anointed to be the next king of Israel. So maybe you're here today thinking you're not good enough. You have some insecurities about the way you look and don't think you deserve to serve people because you don't look good. Or maybe you're young or a little bit older than me, but you're too, too, you think you're too young for a job interview that you want. Or maybe you think you're too old to serve God. Just know that God is concerned about your heart. God is not concerned about your outward appearance. God put you in a place for a reason, and all he cares about is your inside, not your outside. Thank you. I was like a little mini Jeremy, except a lot better looking. Hey, just listen to his message. It's all right. All right. So some of you know me as Frank, the guy back in kids' life. That's what some of the kids call me. Uh, some of you know me from Cant Life in the video a couple weeks ago. Some of you know me as a friend, and one of you knows me as your husband. Um, when I was given this opportunity to speak to all you guys, I was originally going to share my story. Um, I was going to tell you about who I was. I was going to tell you about when I abused alcohol, about when I was a failing father, about my addictions about my struggle with anger, and about my incessant infidelity. I was going to tell you about how I almost destroyed my family, how I almost destroyed my wife. I was going to tell you about how all of this went on for 10 years. But then God revealed to me that this wasn't my story. He revealed, which I thought was going to be my wife's story. So for an inordinate and honestly brutal amount of time, my wife, her name's KK, lived with a husband that continually lost battles. And although my sin and myself and the enemy launched attack after attack at my wife, trying to break her faith, she chose to stay. So to set all this up, I want to go over a verse. Simon, Simon, Satan is asked to sift each of you like wheat. But I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. In this verse, Satan basically asked for the chance to destroy Simon. He's also known as Peter. 
Satan wanted to shake Peter so intensely that he would lose his faith. There's an important really piece to this that Jesus was trying to show. He, he could have said, let's, let's prevent all this from happening. But he knew something bigger. He knew there was a bigger plan here. He only prayed that Peter wouldn't lose his faith. Jesus knew that the pain that Peter would face would form the character he needed to fulfill God's plan. Some of you might be asking, why would God allow the attack, this attack on Peter? The answer lies in the story of Jesus, his death, and resurrection. The week leading up to Jesus' death was one of the most incredible weeks for all of Jesus' followers. There was so much promise in those events of that week. On Friday, the very day before his death, his disciples were actually celebrating what they thought would be Jesus' rise to power. I'm about to read you a really long excerpt, but it is one of the most powerful pieces of literature I've ever read and honestly got me through some of my darkest moments. So bear with me while I read it. It's by Steve Thomason and is titled Saturday. Saturday must have been a long and dark day. His disciples had watched their soldiers carry him off to his execution the day before. Now it was Saturday. Their master was dead, and the grief cut deeply, leaving them utterly hollow. They had not signed up for this. Jesus was supposed to be the Messiah. He was supposed to lead them to victory over their oppressors. Pain, grief, and sorrow were not part of the package. It seemed as if all hope was gone. We feel this way because we forget an important truth. The way of Jesus is a way of pain, grief, and sorrow. Jesus suffered much in his life, even before his arrest and execution. But Jesus told us it would be this way. In John's account of Jesus' final teaching, Jesus said that God would prune the branches that clung to the vine. Pruning hurts. To have large parts of your life severed from you is not a pleasant experience. There is not joy in the sensation of shears cutting into your flesh. Yet as the great gardener knows, without pruning, there is no life. The disciples learned about this and went on to write to the churches about it. Peter told us that suffering refines our hearts like fire refines gold. Then Paul, as he described the painful process, reached the climax of the whole process with one word, hope. Saturday was finally over. On Sunday, the disciples came face to face with a reality that is deeper than grief. They met hope. Jesus plowed through the pain and grief and came out the other side alive once again. Saturdays will come, of that you can be sure. They'll come and they'll be painful. They may last a day, they may last 20 years. When they come, remember this, without Saturday, we don't get to Sunday. The love of Jesus is our hope today and forever. We will grieve, but we can grieve with hope. Let's circle back to KK's, that's my wife, her story. Her Friday, let's talk about her Friday. It was the promise of marrying me, a man that she thought would be the husband of her dreams. Her Saturday was my sin, my failures, my addictions, and my infidelity but she hung on. She hung on to the hope of God, the hope that somehow God would change me. She held on to Sunday. Here's the best part of this entire story. Jeremy, I'm going long, sorry. God didn't just change me. He didn't just restore our marriage. He didn't just save our family. Here's what he did. He made it a God story. As we look over the last 10 years, we see that God was there the entire time. He introduced us to Amy Hollingshead, who attends this church through counseling. And, that, and through that friendship came eventually a visit to here. A few years later in the Canton Church, one Sunday, KK had decided she was leaving me and leaving the church. She was actually sitting almost right exactly where she was, about five feet from me. 
And she literally had decided that was her last day and that she'd be leaving and she'd be leaving this church. Something out of the norm happened. A lady named Mary Beth walked over to, and you, all y'all know Mary Beth. She's, she's loud and kind of in the corner in the back. I'm surprised she's not screaming right now. Walked over to my wife and just started chatting her up, talking to her like they'd known each other forever. Something changed in KK's heart, and she decided, you know what? I'm going to give Kenton Church another chance. A year later, on the way to rebel, KK was driving to rebel and was struggling with a self of worthlessness and a, self of, a, a, a sense of feeling of not feeling loved. She came in to rebel, was standing, I believe, somewhere around here. Laura Ropo was sitting in front of her. As they were leading worship and going in worship and praising God, Laura turned around and saw KK's eyes just full of tears. At the end of worship, Laura came over to KK and said, when I looked at you, God spoke to me and wanted me to tell you that you're his girl and that he loves you. It was the thing that she needed to hear the most. I've got so many stories like this. I've got stories about Jesus planting, or not Jesus, Jeremy, planting seeds every Sunday. <laughs> I got stories about Matt Popham, the Drakes, the McCooks, the Thomases, the Tillers, the Sparks, Dave Hyman have all been there. Fast forward to today, our Sunday. I stand here a redeemed husband, father, and friend, but I wouldn't be here without the pain. I wouldn't be here if my wife hadn't chosen to hang on for the hope of God's promises. The pain of the past has shaped who, KK, who, has shaped who KK and are today. I believe that KK's faith in God, her willingness to endure the pain, was the pain that allowed both her and me to form the character that was needed to fulfill our role in Canton Church, our role as parents, and our role as husband and wife. We now lead a marriage group. That's kind of crazy. We have the opportunity to have meaningful friendships within the church, and we're the hosts of Canton Life, your very first step of becoming an active member of this church. So as I prayed about this entire opportunity today, I realized this wasn't my story, that it wasn't KK's story, but it's God's story. He wrote it, and he's writing one for you. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what you're going through, but I do know this because I've lived it, and I've watched it firsthand. God is good. God's in control. He's the great gardener. The next part to his plan could be sitting next to you, or maybe you're sitting next to someone, and you could be there, Laura Ropo. Hold on to that. Hold on to hope. Hold on to the fact that God's working on his masterpiece, and you and your story are a part of that masterpiece. Hold on to the same resurrecting power that allowed Jesus to rise on Sunday. Thank you so much. Good morning. My name is Missy Pope, and I'm going to talk to you today about how good God is, even when very bad things happen. We have a choice when we go through adversity. We can either be bitter and dwell on it, or we can learn from it and let God use it for good. Now, I've had some pretty bad things happen in my life, but before I tell you my story, I want to share my favorite scripture with you. It's Jeremiah 29:11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Here goes. My father committed suicide when I was three years old. I don't remember him at all, but I've been told that I was very close to him and I am a lot like him. 
I don't have a lot of memories of my childhood, but I do remember being afraid of being alone and having nightmares. I'm pretty sure I slept with my mom, or at least tried to, until high school. My first serious boyfriend was not a good guy. He was a high school dropout, an addict. He was extremely controlling and very abusive. I ignored all the warning signs, and there were a lot of them. I did not listen to my mother like I should have, and I graduated high school six months pregnant. I didn't get to go to UGA like I wanted to, but I did still go to college because I wanted to still go and pursue my dreams. <sighs> Raising a child while working two to three part-time jobs and going to college full-time was not easy, and I do not recommend it, but I wouldn't change it either. With the help of my wonderful mother and God's grace, we somehow raised a very fine young man. When I was 21, I met a wonderful guy named Mel Reynolds. It was the first healthy relationship I had ever had, and he showed me what it was like to be truly loved. We dated for a little over a year before he asked my four-year-old son for my hand in marriage. We were engaged for six months, and Mel planned to adopt Joey as soon as we were married. It was 1998, and my life was so good. Um, I had just been given a huge promotion at work, going from a file clerk to a office manager running the whole show of a high-profile psychiatric practice. Um, I was able to quit my other two jobs and work full-time and finish my classes at night. Mel and I were building a beautiful house together, and Joey, Mel, and I were going to be a real family. I remember thinking it seemed too good to be true. Mel died 11 days after we were married. He was struck by lightning on a job site and died instantly. His funeral was exactly two weeks after our wedding. I was a widow and single mother again at the age of 23. I felt like I was in a bad dream that I just couldn't wake up from. I was sad and confused and very angry. After about six months, I decided I needed to start seeing someone to help me work through the grief. And I remember my first support group meeting. I was in a room full of widows and widowers, most of them old enough to be my grandparents. And I've never felt more alone in my entire life. Um, I dove into my work. I worked a lot and kept myself very busy. We had parties at my place just about every weekend. I didn't want to be alone, and I didn't want to deal with my feelings, so I drank and partied and did whatever I could to escape reality. In less than two years, I went from a size 12 to a size 22, gained 100 pounds, and I was completely miserable. Um, Y2K, the year 2000, was a breakthrough year for me. I started exercising and dying and taking care of myself again. Finally earned that bachelor's degree I'd been working on and lost the weight that I had put on. It took me a while, but in 2002, I was ready to start dating again, and that's the year I met Luke. Luke and I had graduated from the same high school one year apart and the same college two years apart, but never had met before. Luke reminded me a lot of Mel, actually. Their history was so much alike it scared me a little. Um, but on my first date with Luke, he asked me if I was a Christian. And I honestly don't think anyone I had ever dated before had ever asked me that. Um, Mel was saved a couple of months before he died at his own mother's funeral. And I grew up in church and always considered myself a Christian, but I wasn't living like one, and I did not have a relationship with God. 
Also on that first date with Luke, after he had heard what all I've been through, he said I deserve to be treated like a princess. Now, it hasn't always been a fairy tale with Luke. We both came with plenty of baggage and have had our share of ups and downs. But Luke and I dated for four years, and we've been married now for 11 years. Less than a year after we were married, I had pulmonary embolisms, uh, blood clots in both of my lungs, which is a very rare side effect from birth control pills, and it's often fatal. Luckily, I didn't die, um, and I've actually grown closer to God since then ever before. A couple of years after that, Luke and I were having our first child together, and we almost lost the baby during the delivery. He had to be transferred to another hospital and was in NICU for eight days. When Cole was released from the hospital, the neurologist told us to be thankful that he was alive, but that he would never be normal. We were scared, but we trusted God, and that doctor was wrong. Today, Cole is the smartest kid in his class, and he knows more about the Bible than me and Luke put together. He is truly a miracle. Now, I could tell you more stories about how God has turned something terrible into something great or terrifying into something great, but Jeremy only gave me six minutes, so I'm going to have to wrap it up here. Uh, when Jeremy first asked me to speak today, he actually didn't know any of my story, um, and my immediate response was, no way, absolutely not. I'm not a gifted communicator. Is that what you called us in the email? Oh, my gosh, no. Um, terrified. Um, then I realized what day he was asking us to speak, and I literally almost fell out of my chair. Today is the 20th anniversary of Mel's death. I felt like God has been asking me to share my story in some way for a very long time. I'm not sure why or who it might help, but I don't think Jeremy asking me to speak on the 20th anniversary is a coincidence. Now, I'm not up here trying to act like my life is perfect by any means, because it's not. Or that I understand why bad things happen, but I'm here to tell you that God is good. I grew up without a father, that God has put wonderful men in my life along the way to help fill that gap. The unplanned pregnancy when I was a teenager turned into one of the biggest blessings in my life. I am married to a great man who occasionally really does treat me like a princess. <laughs> and these past 15 years have been the happiest years of my life. We have four beautiful and healthy children and an adorable daughter-in-law. We are very blessed. A long time after Mel died, I would have severe anxiety when things seemed to be going too good. I was always waiting for something bad to happen. And I do still worry more than I know I should. But one thing that I've learned is that God is in control. And no matter what bad things happen, he has a plan for us. And he will bring something good from it if we just trust in him. Thank you. Jeremy, I want to thank you for making me number 12 of 12. Uh, no pressure. These people have done a phenomenal job today, and, and really, thank you for letting me be a part of today. So I'm sitting in this chair. In front of me is the board of elders for the church I'm a, I'm a member of. My wife and I have been a member of this church for a couple years. This is the same board of elders that five years ago asked my wife and I to help come start this church in the Canton area. This church actually met in our home for the first six months. The children's ministry was in the garage on my wife's cheerleading mats. Uh, 
nine months ago, this same group of elders has said, Billy, we've been praying about it. We think we want you to become an elder in this church as well. Along with becoming an elder in this church, we'd like you to become an, an ordained minister under our denominational banner. Over the next nine months, I went through a series of, of written essays. I uh, went through extensive one-on-one -on -one interviews about my faith, doctrine, uh, ministry philosophy. It was, it was a, a fairly taxing time. But uh, that whole time I felt like this was, this was God's plan. This was what God wanted. So at the end of that, that nine-month period, about two weeks from the ordination date, the board called me in and said, Billy, we, we've reviewed. We feel like you're uh, the candidate that we're looking for to be a part of this. Well, let me tell you, I was overjoyed. I was excited. My wife and I called everybody. The date had been set for the ceremony. We called our wives and friends. Our wives and friends. We called all our friends and family. If you brought your wife, that was your business. <laughs> but so we get our family together. You know, we're so excited and. And I'm thinking to myself, man, this has been a grind, but I did it. I did it. Three days before the ordination ceremony, I'm sitting in that chair that I just told you about. Tears are streaming down my face. My soul is crushed. I'm enraged. That board of five men met three days before, and for whatever reason, through prayer, have decided that I'm not ready and that I'm no longer a candidate. And uh, let me just tell you, for the next 18 months of my life, I did not step foot in a church. I was just in a spiritual depression. I was not in a daily communion with God at all. I did my best to be a, a godly father and a godly husband, but like I said, I was in a severe depression, and I really just wasn't walking with the Lord. But I got a phone call one day from a gentleman who I'd been at that church with who was much older than I and, and much wiser and, and had kind of been a mentor to me. And, and we sat down and, and had lunch together, and, and we did the small talk thing. But eventually he got to the point and said, Billy, can I, can I speak to your heart for a minute? Can I speak into your life? I said, yeah, Jerry, please. He said, son, this is, this is God's plan. You were living Billy's plan, but this is God's plan. And let me share something with you. You need to run to something today and not run from something. I really sat down after that and started just getting in the word again and, and trying to figure out what God was trying to teach me in that. And I realized in that moment that it was never God's plan for my life to go into formal ministry. Instead, in the last several years building up to this moment, I was all about Billy. I was buying into the lies that Satan had put in my life about self-promotion. Remember last week, Jeremy talked about in Acts 1, Barsabbas and Matthias, as they were both being voted upon to fill that 12th slot that Judas had vacated as a disciple? And what was one of Jeremy's points? He said, Sometimes there's a part of your soul that still needs to be cleansed before you can totally just submit, submit to God. And I want to tell you today that that's what was going on in my life. 
Luke 9.23 says, Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Here's what God taught me in this situation. I didn't have to speak from a pulpit to do his work. Right? God had long put me in the ministry he wanted me. I was supposed to be the hands and feet of Jesus in the sphere of influence that he put me in on a daily basis. I was supposed to be a light for Christ in the workplace. There's a picture. Can you throw this picture up real quick? God had put me in a spot to be the hands and feet for Christ for all these young men on a daily basis. And let me tell you what God's done with this. Not only do I get to share with these guys on the athletic field, but I get to share in their lives. Not only do I get to teach them sports, I get to teach them how to be an integrous young man. And through that, I can tell you that it has opened doors for me to speak with their families, not only about sports, but about Christ. Jeremiah 29, 11. Missy's already said it, but I want to bring it up one more time. It says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. As I sat in that chair, in that moment, I felt like God didn't have a seat for me. Guess what? That was four years ago today. And I just realized that this week as we were talking about it. Four years ago today. Just like your, your uh, story, Missy. God had a plan for me the entire time. When I was sitting in that seat feeling like I wasn't worthy and I had no ministry for the Lord... He knew I'd be standing right here today, getting to share my heart with you in this church. So as I close, I just want to ask you two quick questions. Are you seeking the approval of man, or are you seeking the approval of God? Where does your devotion lie? Is your devotion rooted in the approval and admiration of others, or are you focused on your eternal Father? And number two, are you in communion with God? If the answer is yes, I pray that you would continue to seek his face, continue to seek his will for your life, continue to get down on your knees and in the word and ask what he would have you to do. But if the answer is no, if you're not in communion with God, I want to tell you today that there's only one way to be in communion with him, and that's through his son, Jesus Christ. So as we finish up here today, and again, I want to thank you for sharing with me. I ask you this, if you're not in communion with God this morning, please take that next step, whether you grab Jeremy or Trevor or Corey or any, any one of the leaders of this church, grab someone that shared their heart up here today. Come ask me. I would love to share with you the free gift of Jesus Christ. And I'm going to leave you with a quick quote, if I can remember it. Oh, there it is. I read this this week from the great theologian Tim Tebow. And if y'all know me, I'm a huge Florida fan. So the great theologian Tim Tebow said this this week, but I love it. It says, those who leave everything in God's hands will eventually see God's hands in everything. Be blessed. Thank you. 
Thank you again for listening. If you would like more information about today's message or about our church, we invite you to visit us at cantonchurch.com or on Facebook at facebook.com slash cantonchurchga. 